Discovering your passion and purpose with Patty. And as we know, each week I am Patty Stulen and I am the Chief Pathfinder of Pathways with Patty, where we are sharing stories with you about people who have faced challenges throughout their life. And even though they have reached those challenges, they have not let those challenges stop them from pursuing their passion and purpose. And in many cases, having to redefine their passion and purpose for what they want to do in their life. And today it is not a, and it's another exciting episode, even more so because I feel like I'm having a full circle moment with my particular guest, because this guest is someone who I had the privilege to teach at the same school with at Granite Hills High School. And uh, we would meet almost daily on the blacktop when she would have her students out at class and I would be out there too. And we had so many wonderful opportunities to talk. And I knew when I started this podcast over a month ago that uh, she was someone that I definitely wanted to have on my podcast. So with that, I'm going to introduce her and then start right into what I know is going to be such an informative and fun interview for me. And it is with uh, Dr. Alika uh, Jackson. I'm going to say this correctly, Jarrell. Yes. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Has worked as an educator for the past 25 years. She is originally from Compton, California, and grew up in South Central Los Angeles and currently resides in the high desert. She is a wife, mother to eight children. Yes, I said eight children, community organizer and an activist, and is a published author of four books with her most recent narrative, Finding My Way, being released in May of 2023. Alika has a strong love and understanding that education is a pathway to freedom. As she navigated through higher education, she found the higher she went, the less representation was present. With that in mind, Dr. Jackson sought to level the playing field to ensure that other Black girls and boys understood that they could champion education. In 2022, she obtained her doctorate degree from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign in educational policy and leadership with an emphasis on diversity and equity in education in effort to become better equipped to address the diverse needs of the marginalized students. Currently, Dr. Jackson is an educator and heritage site coordinator at Atalanto High School, where she works to address the disparity in addressing the academic, cultural, and social emotional needs of African-American students 
with the goals of increasing the number of students meeting A through G requirements, applying to and being accepted to four-year colleges. She recently founded the Five Black Women Who Care, LLC, which facilitates cultural events such as Black Grad High Desert, a pre-commencement celebration for African-American youth to celebrate and allow students to take pride in their accomplishments while also celebrating the strength, beauty, and resilience of Blackness. Alika, it is so awesome having you here today. How are you doing? Oh, thank you so much, Patty. I am doing awesome. I'm so happy for you that you have a podcast. This is everything that you said you would do once you retired, and I, I'm so honored to be here as your guest. Oh, well, thank you, thank you, thank you. And as you and I were just talking and I was sharing with you, all of those talks that we had on the blacktop and a few times when I managed to sneak over to your classroom and we would talk, uh, we shared each other's dreams and aspirations with each other for our futures. And I want all of you listening out there to know that every single thing that Alika shared with me during those talks she has more than accomplished each and every one of them. And she is just an inspiring person. You inspired me in so many ways, Alika. And as I've said before earlier, through those conversations, I knew you were exactly someone that fit the profile of who I wanted to be on this podcast. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say too much more because I really want you to get into sharing your story with our audience uh, about you know your upbringing and the things that you have faced and your challenges and what you have continued to do to finally get to Dr. Alika Jackson Jarrell. <laughs> I mean, come on now. I mean that. That's incredible. <laughs> well, it has been a journey. Um, and, and like I always say, um, it's not where you start, it's where you finish. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up, like you said in the, in the bio, I, I'm originally from Compton, California, um, raised by my mom and dad uh, until I was five and they got divorced. Uh, but Throughout that time, when, when, when I say Compton nowadays to people, they're like, oh my God, Compton. Um, when I was there growing up, it was a wonderful place to live. We rode our bikes. We did, uh, we played school on the porch, which is where I first discovered I wanted to be a teacher. Um, I would have my younger sister uh, sitting with her friends and dolls on the porch and I'd be the teacher. Uh, she'll still tell you at, at 48, She's 48 now. My big sister taught me how to read. Oh, wow. And I didn't realize that I was doing that uh, at five years old when I was teaching her phonetic awareness. Didn't know the term for it, but wow. <laughs> um, Yeah, grew up there. Like I said, my parents got divorced when I was five. Um, we moved to a place called Oxenard, which was pretty pretty much a culture shock. If you know Oxenard, oh, yeah. um, it's in Ventura County. Um, it, at the time, my sister and I were the only black students at Kamala Elementary School. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so that was a culture shock, just going from Compton, where I was predominantly African-American, to a place where we were the only um, African-American students at the school. Um, wow. 
that was an interesting journey. What I will say from that journey is I got a great education. Um, I came into contact with people who were different, who treated me just as good as anybody else. Awesome. Um, uh, it was also a time uh, I became aware of um, racism. It was the first time mm. I got called the N-word. Oh my gosh. Uh, yes, on the way home from school, uh, me and my sister. Um, but because our parents had really rooted us in who we were um, as young black girls, uh, it it was it was it was a shock, but it it didn't hurt our esteem. Mm -hmm. uh, but it did introduce us to something that we had never experienced before. So we stayed there a few years, um, learned a lot. Can uh, I ask you something real quick? Yes, based on of course, of course, of course. When you just said that it didn't hurt your self esteem that much, is that because of a foundation that your parents had laid for you? Because yes. because it would seem that with most people that would that would you know. That would hurt. Mm -hmm. it, it actually was, it was, it was shocking. We looked at each other and we just, we were more disappointed that he was in a car with the parent and yelling that out of a window and mm. the parent didn't say anything. But uh, yes, I, I would say it didn't hurt us because we were rooted in a, a great foundation. My father um, always told us our black was beautiful. Mm -hmm. He, he uh, named each of us African names. So we understood our heritage mm -hmm. and where we came from and always taught us to be proud of who we were. Um, we, we were loved. We knew we were loved and, and we were cared for and we had a good sense of self-awareness. So um, those words didn't hurt. I will say that having that having that foundation and I, I was able to raise my own children in that way. So when the, when they experienced those things move into the high desert, it didn't affect them as much either. Wow. So um, that's, that's power. Yes, that is. And that's, I mean, it's learned. We all know uh, research shows that if, if kids are, are taught their heritage, where they came from, they have pride in themselves, uh, they do better in school. They mm -hmm. have a higher sense of self. They have better self-esteem. So um, I didn't know that as a child. And I didn't realize that uh, when my dad was teaching us that. But as I got older and I started researching and studying and learning more, that was one of those uh, statistics that came up. Mm -hmm. And it's something good to know when, when we teach our, our children about our culture and our history, it actually helps them become more well-rounded people and it helps them do better in school. Yeah, because you have a, you know, you have a foundation. You know right. where you come from. You have a community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Excellent. Yes. So, I mean, from there, we stayed there a few years. We moved back to South Central LA, um, and it's funny. It's this. It's funny how it works because we were we were like an anomaly uh, in Oxnard. So even an anomaly, I would say to the kids, because I've always been smart. We always had books in the house. Uh, I was always reading. Um, so so I was in the, I was in the fifth grade class, but I was reading at an eighth grade level. So oh. I would have to go to the sixth grade class and read with the sixth grade students who were also at an eighth grade level. So I think that just me being in a space um, and a lot of my teachers had never interacted with African-American students. Mm -hmm. So me being a, a smart student kind of helped, I think, other African-Americans who would come to follow. Mm -hmm. um, so much so that one of my teachers, I'll never forget her. She was a great teacher. Her name was Mrs. Steele. She had a party at her house and she invited some of us uh, students 
and she invited uh, some of her and her husband's friends. And there was a moment at the party where she had me come into her living room. And it's funny because my mother, she, she, you know, nowadays we kind of warn our kids, you're not supposed to be around adults for, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't do that. They, this was the, this was the early eighties. It was a different time, but mm-hmm. I went in and she actually had me, she had me read a book. And I think it was, I mean, looking back at it, it's kind of, kind of weird to think about, but she had me reading a book, I think to show her guests that I could read so well. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's crazy. It's kind of, it's kind of crazy to think she did, but she did. And I didn't, I wasn't aware. I just read the book. I read the book, her friends, her company asked me some questions. And I think they just were astonished that this little black girl could read so well. Oh my Um, gosh. Yeah. Um, And then after I finished and they, they asked me some questions, I went right back outside to the pool (laughs) and played. But (laughs) uh, looking back at that now, understanding it now, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be instances like that where you, you see someone that's African-American and you assume things about them because of the stereotypes and what you see on TV. Um, Right. And and it's a shock when they when they break those stereotypes. Yes, um, it's uh, it it really is. So um, from there, like I said, I came back to LA. And the funny part about coming back to LA after being in that space um, is the friends we made in LA would say things like, "Oh, you sound like a white girl." <laughs> oh so you hear it you hear it and and then you learn you take those things in and just all of those little all of those little microaggression type things and you learn that what does that mean right funny because my own kids when we came to the high desert um they experienced the same things they their friends telling them they talk like a white girl and oh my gosh. they had to learn. And it's just like, it, it, it happens generationally, these things, but they had to learn to say, what is, what does that mean? Right. Because I can speak academically correct. That's not, um, that's not a racial feature. That's an educated feature. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a professional or culturally appropriate situation, situatedness feature. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, just navigating through those types of things, so came back to LA, um, <laughs> did really well in high school, always wanted to go to college. My parents always impressed upon us that education was your way to freedom, mental mm-hmm. freedom and financial freedom. Um, mm-hmm. It separated you from people who were not educated. And we always were taught that. Uh, we, we, didn't, we, we came from strict, strict parents. My mother remarried. My stepdad raised us from the time I was 13 to adulthood. And we really couldn't go anywhere except they let us go two places in LA during the summers. The, libra- the library, we could walk to the library. We would oh. check out books. We had to do a book, two book reports per week. <laughs> oh my gosh, even during the summer. Even during the summer. And then we could also go to the Coliseum and swim. So oh we became really good swimmers and really good readers. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So I was um, it didn't, didn't have too many boyfriends. Wasn't really thinking about that. Really had my eye on the prize with, with college. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, it was all going well. 
until crack cocaine hit hit the community. Mm. And crack cocaine just changed not only my household, but it changed the entire uh, South Central community. Um, mm. And with that, I had a close hand experience. Um, a parent started using drugs and our, me and my sister's lives completely changed. It just, it, it, she was a functional addict because she worked for the sheriff's department. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. Kind of ironic, huh? Yes. Very ironic. And um, basically kept up on everything. Really. She was functional. Um, it came to never missed a beat. Still came, still worried about our report card grades. Never missed a parent conference. This was all through high school. Mm -hmm. But there were some issues at home of abuse and I just couldn't take it anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. Senior year already filled out applications for college, already was accepted to colleges. And in October of senior year, I said, I can't, I can't do it. And oh dropped out of high school. Yes. Wow. Thinking, thinking, mm. thinking that I would still be able to go to college because my school, my school counselors, well, what, what it, it was crazy. Well, maybe I should tell this part of the story too, because this, this will wrap around into how, we help the youth today at our, our school. So before I dropped out, I went to my school counselor. I didn't tell her what was going on, but I told her I left home and that I needed to change. I didn't have a six period. It was a free period, uh, and but I had AP English first period. So I went mm -hmm. to my counselor who knew my mother because my mother was present at the school and knew me. I was in the magnet program. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, well, I went to my teacher first. I said, Ms. Zaro, amazing English teacher. She just passed away this year, uh, Manual Arts High School. I went to her and I said, I'm having some difficulties getting to school on time and I don't want to fail AP English because I need that to graduate. Can mm -hmm. I switch first period to sixth period AP? Of course, she said, no problem. Went to the counselor. My mom had called the counselor, told her I ran away from home. The counselor refused to switch my classes. So I was now living in Long Beach, but having to be at school every day in Los Angeles at seven o'clock in the morning. Oh, wow. Couldn't make it. No. So I was late, which was eventually, you know, AP class. You can't be late every day. Right. Um, that's why I was trying to change it. In ended up not being able to change it. So I ended up, uh, my mother wouldn't help me. Didn't mm -hmm. want to um, check me out. I moved in with my older sister. Um, who was very responsible. She worked, you know, she had a job or whatever, had her own place. But my mother refused to check us out, check me out. So dropped out. I said, okay, won't be stopped. Took the GD, passed it. Um, and thought that I was still going to be able to go to college. Mm -hmm. However, if you know how it works, you, you, you still need the credits. So my teachers uh -huh. were gracious enough to give me first semester grades because uh -huh. we were near so they gave me first semester but I still needed second semester credits and and some of the classes which would be economics and English um went to Cal State Dominguez because that's where I was gonna go and they said no honey you needed you need those classes I was crushed because my, oh. my whole life that's all I wanted was college right so, right right so Ooh, spiral into a whole nother lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> Met my kid's father at Dominguez, uh, 19 years old. 
um, moved in with him, started having children. I have eight children now. (laughs) Went through a whirlwind of unhealthy relationships, all while going to college, going to work, uh, doing community work, um, but living in, again, an unhealthy relationship with him, Mm -hmm. knowing that I shouldn't be in that relationship because it wasn't healthy. And mm-hmm. I knew what healthy was because my mom had grown, um, you know, we were raised in a healthy man-woman relationship. And right. My father was awesome. Um, but I knew that my relationship with my children's father wasn't healthy. And for years, I stayed. I stayed through domestic violence. I stayed through uh, adversity, poverty, because when you have a lot of kids, you don't have a college education, you don't have a skill, you're working, you know, any job pretty much you can get right. that will pay the bills. So just living to survive. But at the same time, living through su- survival mode, I was able to still have the heart to help the community. So I started a mentoring program for girls. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I went to the local high school in Watts. I, we were living in Watts at the time. And I talked to the principal and I said, um, I don't want our girls to, to be trapped. And I don't want them to have to go through what I had to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, I want them to know that there is life beyond Watts. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and there's so much better um, than what they're seeing because the school I went to was Jordan uh, to mentor was Jordan High School. And right next door to Jordan High School, literally, steps away was the Jordan Downs projects. So these kids would come out of the projects, go right to school, like steps away from school, and then go right back to the projects. The beach was only 15 minutes away from us. Many of them had never been to the beach. Oh my gosh. Yes. So they're just stuck. And you see generations of people stuck. Um, Their grandmothers live there. So they didn't see anything outside of that. So grandmothers, moms, and then them. So I I proposed to start a program for their most challenging young ladies. I said, I'll come and meet with them three days a week and we'll, I'll mentor them. I'll, I'll take them places. You know, I wanted Mm -hmm. to do something um, to give back, but also it was kind of freeing me because, because I was teaching them how to avoid some of the pitfalls that I had avoid that I had encountered. Mm-hmm. So I did that and it was truly successful. We, we did things, we, I mentored them in class, but we also went on field trips. We went to just West Los Angeles where they could see, we, we visited the mansions over there. We visited Ethiopian restaurants just to try the food. None of us liked the food at all, but we could say after we ate at the restaurant, oh, we don't like the Ethiopian food. And then we went to, to Carl's right after. And I just recently had one of the girls tell me, do you remember when you took us to the Ethiopian restaurant? <laughs> <laughs> so just giving them, we went to the beach because I was appalled that we literally lived 15 minutes away from the beach and some of them had never been to the beach. Oh, exactly. Yeah, so um, just giving them those experience. And what ended up happening, all of those girls, I work with 15 girls, all of the, those girls ended up going to college. Oh my goodness. All of them graduated from college. And I'm still in contact with those girls today. Um, some of them are mothers. Uh, some of them work for the city, the county. Um, some of them are just, you know, most of them are doing amazing things. But 
just that program and that time of, of being consistent with them and showing them that there was another way um, really changed lives. And that for me, it changed my life because as I was teaching them, I was saying to myself, oh, I have to do better than this. Mm -hmm. I don't want my kids to grow up and be unhealthy too. And I would have my kids with me um, when I, when I mentored the girls. So they were hearing it too, but I said, I'm living a lie. So I have to come out of that. And yep. that program really, those girls, they tell me I changed them and I helped them. I always tell them they helped me. They saved exactly. me. They saved me. Yes. Um, so uh, two years after I started that program, I ended up leaving my children's dad. I moved to the high desert <laughs> and I, re I pressed restart. I left it all behind. And I made a new life in the high desert that was healthy and functional and um, was able to, to provide my kids with what it means to really live in your truth, mm -hmm. not just to talk about it, um, not to pretend, not to put on a mask. And I vowed that when I left, I would never, ever wear a mask again. I would be transparent. So I, I share my stories, even when we were at Granite. Um, every October during Domestic Violence Awareness Month, I would do the big thing in the library for the students mm -hmm. um, and, and give them a domestic violence workshop with Ms. Hall. Mm -hmm. um, and just to teach them, you know, what to look for and what, what some of the signs are and how to avoid it. And I would share my story because everybody's story, in my opinion, everybody has something to teach. Yes, they Everybody do. has something to give. Mm -hmm. And my story has motivated so many because I tell people you can you look at me and the kids would always say you went through that you exactly because people look at you and they assume yes. you're strong or whatever they make all these assumptions but everybody goes through trials and tribulations mm -hmm. and yes, it's it not it's not where you start is where you is where you end up mm -hmm. where um, you finish yeah where you finish so um you know moving to the high desert moving to the high desert um I just, I became the, the, the real me, I would say. Oh, good. Yeah. Yep. So, so I think the thing that a couple of things here of what you just shared, you knew deep inside before you started working with those young ladies, that that sparked that joy of wanting to be a teacher that had never dimmed. It was still there. Yes. And even though all these roadblocks had been put up in front of you of stopping you from pursuing that particular passion and purpose in your life, you found, you still found a way to become a teacher mentor mm -hmm. through there. And through that realization of doing that, you realized you were not practicing what you were preaching. Exactly. And you had, you had to come to a, a you know, come to Jesus meeting with yourself <laughs> and decide, do I really want to pursue what I know is really there for me to become an educator so I can reach more kids? Or do I just keep on the path that I'm at? And you chose you, you chose to go for the thing that you knew was deep inside you. I know that that was not easy mm -hmm. on many levels. Mm -hmm. So I commend you for putting yourself first and making yourself a priority because especially um, a lot of mothers of eight children, not that I think I know of any, <laughs> I think you're the first one, but I, I can see where just, I mean, mothers in general, their children are come first and foremost. And 
they themselves are so drained because yes. of giving and giving and taking care of everybody else. They do not make self-love and self-care a priority. And my friend, Brenda, and I keep saying this, she's the one that really pointed out to me, self-love and self-care is not selfish. So by you moving to the high desert, you really made yourself a priority knowing that you needed to give yourself that self-love and self-care to not only project you into the future you knew that was there for you, but also set an example for your own children. You you nailed it. Um, self-love was actually the term that I used in order to make that move. I had to learn how to love myself again. Mm-hmm. I loved myself my entire life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really did. Growing up, I loved, I knew who I was. I was self-aware. And I had that relationship, I had gotten away from that. Because like you said, a lot of women, we put the man first, we put the mm-hmm. kids first. And even in the process of being there, my thought process was it's better to stay so the kids can have both parents. Well, I'm here to tell you, it is absolutely not better to stay because you end up doing more damage to your kids by staying in an unhealthy relationship. I had to learn that. So the last two years while I was mentoring those girls, I was also doing a lot of self-talk. I was also, I started journaling. I started writing down um, how I wanted my life to look. All the dirty words and the angry words I had been told, I would write them on one page. And then on the other side, I started writing words that I believed who I was. Um, I started countering the narrative. Um, And with that, every day, I started growing stronger. I literally started reading self-help books. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Journaling, telling, looking in the mirror, telling myself, I love you because, and it was hard in the beginning because I was guilty and I was shameful. Um, Mm -hmm. I was shameful because I was in a situation that I knew I had no business being in for so long. Mm -hmm. So, so I had to do, I really had to do inner work. Um, And I, I worked on myself, like I said, for two years. I started planning my my new place to live before I left the old place. I would wow. draw out how my living room was going to look. Oh I my would gosh. draw out how the bedroom, and I can't draw. I was drawing stick figure couches. <laughs> but it was your vision board. <laughs> but it you was were my creating. vision board. It was, it was. And 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 then I was able to, to put money away. I started putting money away and I was able to get an apartment in the high desert. Mm-hmm. And I, it's funny because we laugh now. The journey is something because um, me and the children, we laugh about it now because when we first moved to the high desert, we had nothing. I I, I didn't want to fight with their dad. So I left everything behind. I didn't care. I just wanted my peace. Mm-hmm. So we, we literally moved here with nothing. And when I say nothing, we had sleeping bags. We wow. slept on the floor. Um, I got, we, we were happy to have the place. I remember going to Ikea and Carson before we finally moved up to the high desert. And I have one, I, I got this, it was an, it's an, it's an orchid. It was a painting of an orchid, just a beautiful, I love flowers. Mm-hmm. So it's a beautiful painting of an orchid. I bought at Ikea. I still have that picture. It, it hangs in my, in my living room now. Um, and I look at it and I smile because that was the picture, the first picture I hung on our apartment wall when we had nothing. Mm-hmm. And it just was a, it was a symbol of peace. Mm-hmm. I had finally gotten peace. And I told the children that your peace is worth more than anything you can ever garner materialistically. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they agreed. 
So I said, just for a few months, we'll we'll sleep on the floor. Um, we moved in January, February taxes hit. <laughs> and back then I got tax returns. So <laughs> I got returns. So I was able to go and buy furniture and, you know, we, we furnished the place or whatever, but it just, it, it, looking back on it now, it, it was, it was, I call it the beautiful journey. It was mm-hmm. a beautiful journey. Um, it was filled with, with tough times. And we, we went through tough times. I was still struggling. Even as I was teaching um, up here in the high desert in the beginning, I was still struggling financially um, because it's hard doing it on your own and mm-hmm. having a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up getting married a couple of years after we moved up here. And of course that helped and the trajectory changed, but there was one thing that remained a constant, always self-love, putting myself first. Even though I have so many children, you have to, you have to take care of yourself first. Are you right. be equipped to help everyone else? And I have Amen. a lot of people to help. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> so I, I even tell my children, you know, put yourself first. I encourage them not to get in relationships young because me and mm-hmm. their dad got in a relationship really young, 19. Um, please travel, travel, go experience life, go take care of you. And it's not selfish. Mm-hmm. It's actually something that you should do in order to procure your love of self. You have to find out who you are first before you start venturing out into, oh, I'm going to do this. Oh, I'm going to love him. Oh, I'm going to love her. You have to love you first um, in order to be a healthy person in another relationship. So yeah, you you have to be good with yourself first, because yeah. if you're not good with you, you cannot be good with anybody else or for anybody else. Right, right. So there was it worked there, out. <laughs> there was a there was a gal, I think I've shared this before that uh, I was listening to another podcast and she had mentioned uh, people were asking her, well, how do you how do you make sure that you your cup stays full? And she says, I don't let them drink from my cup. I let mm. them drink from my saucer. So that <laughs> way I continue to keep my cup full. And I thought, wow, what that's an beautiful. analogy. Yeah. You know, that's, because that's it is true. Awesome. You, you know, it, you, you, you want other people, you want to help other people mm-hmm. because that, that, it, that brings so much to you, but you also don't want them draining you either. Right. So it, just it, that, that little analogy is like, Oh, I, I, I like that. You know? I like that a lot. I like that a lot because too, you know, as healers and helpers, you know, because you're a helper and a healer too. So you do get drained. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm an empath. So, so when I, even with the kids, with the students, if I hear somebody's problems, I'll cry. Mm-hmm. I'll feel what they feel and I'll carry that with me. That can be so draining. Oh, yeah. You have to have ways to to cope with, with dealing with other people's um, pain. Mm-hmm. Um, there are things that you have to do to keep your cup full. For, for me, it's, it's reading. <laughs> for me, it's watching a, a program on TV that I like. But I always, you know what I do? I take baths because for, mm. for me, water is everything. Water is so cleansing for me. So yes. sometimes I'll, I'll be in the bathtub for a good hour or two, just soaking, thinking. I'll have my mood music on. My, my kids and my husband will see me preparing. I take my rose petals in there. For you. <laughs> I, yeah. I, light, I light my candles because in that time, I'm reflecting on the things that I've done. And I'm, re- I'm reflecting on people I've helped, people that I may have hurt, how I can repair uh, mm-hmm. any damage that I've caused. 
but we all have to take a time to re rejuvenate, yes. if, especially the people that are helping, um, yep. because our cup will run dry. And well, it's kind of like, with, so with your bath, it's like what I call my power showers. It never <laughs> fails that when I'm in the shower, that's one same thing. You know, I'm thinking about the people and, and, and I come up with some of my best ideas or best thoughts when I'm in the shower. And it, it, it is something to do with water. Mm-hmm. I thoroughly believe that it's very mm-hmm. cleansing in many ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so, so Lika, what would you say overall is the best advice anyone has ever given you? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, um, of course, love yourself first. Um, and a lot of people say that that's, they might think that that's selfish. You, you hit it on the head It's not selfish to put you first. Mm-hmm. Um, I know with the, with the kids, even with my own kids, whatever I tell my own kids, I'm telling my students because I love them in the same way. And I want to see them successful in the same way. I would want to see my own, my own personal children I gave birth to. So you have to put yourself first. You have to put your goals first. Um, you have to put your needs first. <laughs> your mm-hmm. wants can come after others, but yeah. your needs and your goals need to be the top priority for you. Because if you don't, so much time will pass in between. You won't be able to attend. I mean, you will, but it's just a longer route. So mm-hmm. if you're young and you understand what it means to love yourself and so many kids, when I say that, they're how do you do that? How do you love yourself? And I say, it's easy. Do you know how to love other people? And they mm-hmm. say, yeah. What do you do to love other people? You hug them, you nurture them, you buy things for them, you take them out, you tell them you love them. Well, turn that on to yourself. Oh you my tell, gosh, yes. You do, you, you take yourself out. And that's a process you have to learn. I had to learn to go out to lunch alone. I had mm-hmm. to learn to go be okay with doing that because sometimes it's hard for us to just be still and be with ourselves. Yes. You know, I, I, you know, I started out slowly. I would go to Barnes and Noble by myself, or I, I, I love going now I'm, I'm telling people I, I'll go alone. I'd rather be alone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> time when you can think. Yes. Um, but, um, you know, explaining it to them like that, we're, we, we show people grace. We show the people we love, we show them grace. We forgive them. We have to, in turn, do that for ourselves. We have to show ourselves some grace. We make mistakes. We're human. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be willing to say, I forgive you. Look, mm-hmm. I forgive you for the mistakes that you made. Even mm-hmm. if somebody else can't, I forgive me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I love me. I look in the mirror and I say that. And I, when I mentor the girls, the young girls, we have a, we have a mirror and it's so difficult for them to look at themselves and say kind things to themselves. Wow. It's easy for them to, to see the, the, the negative things about themselves, the flaws, right? But when they are able to, to hold the mirror up and say, I love you. They struggle with that. Mm-hmm. And, and so we have to train ourselves to, to be able to accept ourselves for who we are with the notion that we're always trying to be better. And, you know, I'm, I'm going back to something that you just said, because it's really resonating with me, is putting your needs in front of your wants and teaching others that same thing. And again, I, it sounds very simple, but it in reality is not. And I think that that that's a powerful statement that you made. So I, I just wanted to, to bring that back because it goes along with 
as teachers, that is part of what we do is to let our students know that there is a difference between a want mm -hmm. and a need. And what is that? And we need to love ourselves. We need to take care of ourselves. And but we also need to know what that looks like, because I know, unfortunately, for many of our kids that we teach, they don't come from homes where that is demonstrated. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we as educators, we're, we're that pseudo substitute parent that it may seem like a simple concept, but that's what they're needing to know to become the very best them that they can be. Exactly. And you're doing a wonderful job with the programs you're creating and the things that you're doing because you are definitely practicing what you preach now. So you're yes. being true to yourself. Yes, yes, yes. And that's the only way to live at this point. <laughs> It's true. It's absolutely true. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and coming to a point where you can be okay by yourself. Yes. Um, everybody, and then learning too, everybody's not going to like you for what you say. Everybody's not going to like your truth. And that's okay too. Um, I'm okay with, with people not liking the way that I see things. Um, I, I'm, I just, I'm more open to being able to communicate with people and agreeing to disagree at times. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Um, a lot of people can't do that though. They, they want you to agree with everything or it, or everything or nothing. Either we right. have to agree on everything or we can't be friends. And I don't see it in that way. I say, no. We can, we can still have some commonality. We can still agree on some things and we just don't disagree. You know, we don't agree on this thing, but it doesn't stop you from being a good human being. But that, that, even that growth in mindset, that takes time too. Right. Right. And, and as we talked briefly before we got on this, one of the things that I admired and respected about you that I felt good is you, you allowed me to feel comfortable enough because uh, teaching in, in Apple Valley, uh, very, very white. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were starting to get more African-American kids at school. And I, 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 there are differences. Right. And I did not understand on how to be able to reach and teach my African-American students as well. And what I appreciated the fact was that I knew I could always come to you and ask my questions that were probably not, not politically correct because I didn't <laughs> know how to address them, but you understood that and you were so good with me. And I think that that's another thing that I want to impress upon our audience that's listening is when you know better, you do better. Right, right. And, and, and to go to have a resource like you, like I had, I appreciated that because it, it not only made me a better teacher for my students, it made me a better person in general in society, right. you know, because just like you said with your kids, uh, living 15 minutes away from the ocean and never being at the ocean, we tend to do that with our with our little communities that we just stick in in that little community and we don't expand our horizons and know how many incredible people are outside of that community, and 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 you you were helping me to expand my community. And I know as a retired person, I am a richer person for that because in my travels of traveling full-time in my RV, I, I'm not in, in inhibited or intimidated that when I see other people to talk to them about 
their travels, their adventures, how they're living their life, because that's helping me to grow as a person also. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. And and no, you never, you never, I, you know what I appreciated most about you, Patty? You always, you weren't, unaf- you were unafraid to ask those questions. Even if you did say something wrong, you were okay in, in needing to be corrected if need be. Right. Um, but that, that wasn't, that wasn't the case. You were always open to the information. You were always open to learning. So I I always respected you for that. Um, And I always, I understand my position. I think maybe it was because I went to Kamala and, and, and was, uh, was the only black person. And I understood, understand that concept of just not understanding other people's cultures and getting to know other people's cultures and being better off for that. Right. So so I, I see myself now as sort of a cultural broker. I love talking Ooh. about uh, race. I love talking about uh, different cultures. I love learning about different cultures, mm-hmm. love traveling and seeing other people and learning their customs and things like that. But the only way that as a community, we're going to get closer is if we start understanding each other and communicating more. Oh yeah. So with that understanding, I always open myself up to people who have questions and who are really interested in in learning and wanting to support and grow. Um, And I appreciate, you know, I appreciate Mr. McCall too, for the same reason that I appreciate you. Because when I came to Granite Hills, um, he told me, he said, uh, the school had been predominantly white, uh, the Mm -hmm. student population. And he said the demographics were changing, more African-Americans, more Latino students were coming to our school. And he said, when he hired me, he was so excited because the school needed help. Mm-hmm. And he said, he said that the teachers had not experienced African-American students because the demographics were changing. Um, they just couldn't connect in that way. And he said the students were graduating. They were ending up going to jail. Mm-hmm. It just, it, it wasn't helpful to the students to just remain in a place where nobody was relating to, to the other people on, on campus at this time. Right. Right. So, so he, 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 when he hired me, he, he said that he was transparent. He said, we need help. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> he said, we need help with our African-American students and our Latino students because we're not reaching them. And I was so honored to be the person to help in that process. Mm-hmm. I, I, I loved being a part of the growth process that happened at Granite. And you were part of that too, with the culture committee. Oh you're yeah. Awesome. You're awesome lead. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and it's, it's, imp- it's important that we, that we learn about each other. I mean, for me, it's what, what, what makes me a better, well-rounded person, you know, and, and, uh, I, you know, just like, I haven't been to an Ethiopian restaurant yet, but that's, that's kind of what I do on my travels. It's oh. like, Hey, here's, here's this kind of food. I've never tried this before. I'm going to, but it, it's just the, the whole thing. It just, I know it makes me a better, well-rounded person. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about knowing what's on the news. It's about learning your own community and the world around you. Exactly. And you'll learn once you do that, the news is pretty much on every channel you turn to propaganda. And it's generally not true because I always like to tell people, Black people are just like any other group of people. Mm -hmm. Our values are are equivalent and equal to everybody else's. We promote education in our homes. That's primary. Even Mm -hmm. if it doesn't look like that to somebody else, you will have a mother and a grandmother and an uncle and a dad saying, you need to go to school and get your education. 
-hmm. even if they didn't do it, they realize that education is the key. So um, that that's one of a uh, that's a primary value in African American homes. Family, primary value, um, respect. And I, I remember doing these workshops and, and people were like, respect. Some of the black kids don't respect, you know, but in our homes, there's a hierarchy of respect. You respect your elders. Mm-hmm. So if they're not respecting teachers in the classroom, there's a disconnect between you and that student because they are used to respecting the hierarchy and the elders in the home. Right. So it's just, I mean, it's, it's common things. I tell people this too, in most communities, in most communities, no matter if it's black, white, Latino, Asian, most people in the community are positive people. They go to work. They want the best for their family. They want to feed their families. They want to do everything. You know, that's pretty much even across the board. However, in every community, there is a small subset of idiots. But that's in every community. Yeah, yes. in every community. Yes. But, but for some reason, we assume, people assume that when you see a black person, that that person fits the stereotype and narrative of what you've seen on TV. And if you don't talk to them, you would never know. And I'm, I, I wanna get into mm-hmm. this because I wanna share with you just some of the experiences I have being a black woman and being an educated black woman in the high desert. Mm-hmm. Um, because in LA, in LA, when we talk about like race and diversity, their their systemic racism comes in a different form. It, it's not going to be overt. It's going to be they don't have access to books. Mm-hmm. So an example of this, I we lived in Watts, but I sent my 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 daughter, my children to a school in West LA. They I would drive them there every morning because the schools were better than the schools in Watts. Mm-hmm. They had MacBooks way back then. They had a uh, beautifully landscaped you know, uh, uh, campuses, Hmm. they had higher, highly educated teachers. Whereas in Watts, literally the ceilings were falling down. There were rats in the school. This was at school. The ceiling, you could look up and you would see water stains and you would see openings. You would see holes. You you never saw flowers. They didn't have books, enough books for students in the classroom. So because I am in this situation and I was the lucky one because we had a car to drive all the way to West LA. Some -hmm. of the people that live there are forced to go to those schools. Right. When we talk about things like systemic racism, that's what we mean. We mean that there are schools in this community that are dilapidated uh they don't have resources they don't have access to even books but then you go 20 minutes across town and you're living in the golden era right those are the type of things i know uh, people get you know tricked up with these words but when we break them down you have to understand that it is a lived reality that this is happening in those communities and this is happening in this community. And then we expect these same people to be able to compete on the mm-hmm. same level. It is totally impossible. One right. group has more and the other group has much, much less. Mm-hmm. So it's not equitable. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, coming to, come to the high desert is just some things that, that even me as an adult, my kids, I have stories for days. Just this is the reason why I got ended up getting a doctorate in diversity and equity. Because coming coming to the high desert, like we had we had access issues and access limited opportunities in, in Watts. But in the high desert, the racism was a bit more overt. 
So mm -hmm. the kids got called the N-word on a regular basis. My son had never had a fight in school. Um, and I remember I was at work at Granite and I get a phone call from my son's principal. He was in, he was nine. He was in fourth grade, I believe. Um, principal calls, your son just got in a fight. And I'm appalled because my kids never had a fight. Mm -hmm. And so she says, I said, what was he fighting about? And she said, they were fighting over football. So I'm fuming because she's at this point telling me to leave work, come and pick him up from, uh, from school. So I'm on my, my drive. I'm like, oh, he's going to get it. I had to leave work. He's fighting over a doggone football game. I'm getting him. <laughs> so I get there and he's crying. He's sitting there. He already knows he's going to get it. And um, the principal comes to me quickly and she whispers, uh, Miss Jackson, uh, uh, we're not going to suspend him. He, he did have a fight, but I found out why he had a fight. And I said, well, why? What happened? She said, somebody called him the N word. Oh. And, and he just said he, you know, he had, nobody had ever called him. And it was like, you know, in that moment, I was nine in Oxnard when that happened to me. Oh my gosh. And him, he's now here. And this was, oh, this was probably about 20, 20, 2011. This was 2011. Um, and this is still happening. So mm -hmm. from 1980s to, to now, and I just turned around, I said, stop crying. But I had to have a conversation with my son and explain to him why he couldn't hit anybody for words, for words, but also to explain to him about the N word and about, mm -hmm. you know, being called that. And he would be looked at as the aggressor because he was uh, he was he was nine years old, but he was tall and he was big. And if he beat somebody up, he would be the one that gets in trouble for it. So we had right. to have a conversation and um, I had to explain to him how this the this place, the high desert worked because this was common. A lot of the kids were being called the N word and no schools were addressing it, wow. um, you know, as a parent. And I always advise parents to do this. I, I did this in Watts, but I also do it, you know, did it in the high desert. Whenever my kids started a school, I would introduce myself to, to the principal. Um, my husband, you know, would come and introduce himself and um, just let the principal know what our expectations were as parents for our kids and that we were here to support the school, but mm -hmm. just to let them know because they had an idea. I'm telling you, when we moved to the high desert, it, it came all 360. My kids were the only kids in their classes, black in his spirit. Right. And, so, and that comes with preconceived ideas. Yes, it comes with preconceived ideas. So at Sultana, my, my daughter, you know, my daughter, she was in AP classes, of course, all the only black kid in the class. My son, same thing. At Ranchero, only black kids in the class. At Lime Street, same thing. And this was like before people start moving. I think black people were moving to the high desert, but they weren't particularly moving to Hesperia. Right. And somebody right. asked me, well, why would you move to Hesperia out of the three cities? And I, I, I told them it was it was intentional because I looked at the um, the data for the school mm -hmm. and just at the time, Hesperia, you know, the high school, they were doing better than some of the other schools. Mm -hmm. So I looked at, at for the education, but they had some experiences within those schools that really 
push me to say, I have to advocate more for African-American students. I need to be more equipped. Let me get this doctorate degree in diversity and equity so I can understand more about the process. Mm -hmm. But just being able to advocate and, and teach others how to advocate in a space where they were not used to seeing African-Americans, and they definitely were not used to seeing um, African-Americans who advocated. Because- right. The African-Americans who were here were just going along to get along. They didn't want any problems. So when, even when I would go to the parents and say, well, this is what is going on. We need to address this as a community, an African-American community. They were scared and literally mm -hmm. would say, I'm afraid. Something mm -hmm. terrible happened to my daughter when she was in second grade. Um, they played the song, Oh, Susanna. You know oh, that song? Yes, I do. Okay. Oh, Susanna. She came home and she said, mom, they played a racist song at school. And I said, what song? And she said, oh, Susanna. I said, I sung that song in school. I said, that song, you guys are learning about the, the, the gold, you know, in California. She said, we are. She said, so they played get lighter fluid and kill 500 N words when you were in school. She said, what? And I Googled mm. it. And the original version of the song was actually a racist song. They sang the song in blackface. And part oh, of the, the lines of the words say, get light, the original song, get lighter fluid and kill 500 N words. And her teacher at the time played this song twice with the words on the screen for the kids to see. Mind you, this is second grade. Oh and my goodness. When my daughter, who is very, she actually was a valedictorian of Hesperia High this year. Um, amazing child, but she she's always been amazing. So she was in second grade. She was the one in her class that spoke up and said, this is racist. This is not right. And her teacher let the song play and they repeated the term. And she said, this is racist. This is not right. No. And the teacher... And at this time, it was her and three other African-American students in the class. So when they said it the second time, get lighter fluid and kill 500 N-word, a white student in the class pointed at her and the other students and said, that's you, you, and you. So all of this is happening. The teacher's playing a song. And I said, what does she do when she finished? She just said, oh, that was a good song. We're going out to recess. So when my daughter came home and I heard this, I'm of course shocked first. I looked it up and, and my first thought, I was horrified. I was sad. I cried because mm -hmm. our job as a parent first is to keep our kids safe. Mm -hmm. um, as a school, as an educator, is our job is to keep our students safe. Mm -hmm. And that was horrendous. Right. So I, I cried. I, I cried because I'm I'm thinking at the same time, I moved my kids here. This is not the first incident, but this was a, by far one of the most serious. But I felt bad as a mother, like I, I wasn't protecting my kids. I moved them in spaces where there was no representation at schools. There were no African-American teachers, no janitors, nobody they could identify with at school. And I mm -hmm. felt like crap. Right. And, and here we have this situation. So I was able to call my mentor, who at the time, was Mrs. Okpara. <laughs> oh, yes. 
Yes. And I said, I don't know what to do. And I'm crying. And I'm like, I, I my kids, and, and it's funny how resilient kids are though. Cause I, I didn't want to, it was only like two weeks left of school. And I, I said, I definitely am taking her out of that teacher's class. Cause I just don't feel comfortable with her in that class. I don't care if it's the last two weeks. Mm-hmm. I wanted to just keep her out of school. And my daughter was like, I'm going to school. <laughs> Good so, yeah. So, um, so I ended up, you know, I talked to Ms. Opara she let me know what my rights were as a parent. And I, I, I was able to go and talk to the, the three other kids' parents. And I asked them if their kids had come home and told them what happened. They hadn't. So mm. maybe my thought was this teacher assumed that our kids don't come home and tell us about their days. Don't and talk. in some cases, they don't. But in, in my case, I asked, you know, that I, ever since they were little. Because you had taught you taught your yeah. daughter that. Yes. What was what did you learn at school? That yes. that's the conversation. Not just how was your day. What did you learn at school? What was important to you at school? Mm-hmm. So the the fact that she had the teacher had facilitated racism because that other boy, you know, he knew what the n-word was. He pointed at the black kids and said, That's you, you and you. Mm-hmm. She was irresponsible. Right. So it turned into a big thing. I ended up having a meeting with the uh, principal. I asked to have a meeting with the teacher too. They didn't. They they uh, took her out of the classroom. They changed my daughter's class for the last two weeks, put her in another class. Um, it went all the way up to the district. Um, but before it went all the way up to the district, some I won't say his name because he still works there. He called me and he said, Ooh, she really stepped in it, didn't she? Because I, I sent the letter to everybody, um, the complaint. And I said, she definitely did. And he told me, he said, you know, she had to look for that song. I said, yeah, because you really have to look for the original virgin, right. version of that song. He said, that's awful. Went all the way up to the district. My daughter went all the way up, talked to lawyers. We weren't trying to sue the school or anything, but I had, you know, I had, uh, I had contacted ACLU because I'm like, this is not right. And mm-hmm. nobody's listening. And so it went all the way up. And at the end of the day, after the lawyers talked to my daughter, they asked her, they said, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? She was like, I want to work for the FBI. I want to be a forensic psychologist. And to this day, she still does. Wow. They said, well, we don't believe, we believe that you'll be whatever you, because <laughs> she remembered this mm-hmm. thing took like a year and a half. The teacher ended up retiring at 40. Oh um, yeah, so it took like a year and a half and, and Queen still remembered where every student was sitting in the class, where the teacher was standing. They tried to trip her up with the questions. She just answered them, uh, you know, correctly. But all of that, and the district sends a letter out to me and the ACLU saying it was unfounded. <laughs> oh. Yes. So I'm like, this is what we're, this is the stuff that we have to deal with. Now you heard that whole story. How could that be unfounded? Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, stuff like that, just kids being yelled at because they're not standing for the pledge. Um, And then this is, this is something that I want to touch on. Not everyone stands for the pledge. Jews don't stand for the pledge. Muslims don't stand for the pledge. Jehovah Witnesses don't stand for the pledge. See, that's a cult, that's cultural knowledge. Mm-hmm. The only reason it's a big deal now is because of the whole Kaepernick thing. Right. But if you ascribe to any of those ideologies, you never stood for the pledge and never was it an issue until Colin Kaepernick and the whole football thing. So after that football thing and it became an issue, when we moved to the high desert, my kids have never stood for the pledge because of religious beliefs, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, when we moved here, we had to go through that whole process. And, and believe me, I was preventative after it happened the first time. Teachers yelling, telling them they were disrespectful. And this is what I say is why it's important to talk to people and understand cultures because this is not a new concept for generations. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, ideologies, some ideologies just don't believe in pledging their allegiance to anything but God, right? Right, right. So if you don't know that culturally, you just don't know that, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Right. So instead of, and I still see this to this day, I see this in our district. I see this, I know about it in, in other districts. Teachers are still yelling at kids who don't stand for the pledge and they don't even ask them why which is not their right to ask them why. It's just mm-hmm. a personal choice. And it's against the law. I'm saying this on here now. It's mm-hmm. literally against the law and districts can be sued for tormenting kids about standing for the Pledge of Allegiance mm-hmm. because you don't know why. Right. And, you, and it's none of your business why, but you shouldn't be tormenting anybody in the first place. So with that in mind, just dealing with that, dealing with, you know, my my kids started, uh, diversity club at one of the high schools they wouldn't let them call it black student union because they said it was divisive (laughs) even though all for as long as i can remember being in high school myself in the 70s that's what it was called black student union right it coming from la this was all a culture shock because la is much more diverse and a little more progressive a lot more progressive than the high desert but but coming from there and coming here was like we can't call it black student union they don't celebrate Black History Month. And do you remember at Granite, there were really no Black History celebrations. Right. I went to Mr. McCall and I said, uh-uh, we have to do something for Black History Month. We have to do something for Cinco de Mayo. And you know what All he of it. You know what he told me? He said, go ahead, I'll fill the calls. And I didn't understand what that meant. <laughs> I did not understand. I, that's why I love, I love Mr. McCall. He was just all for the progression. But I didn't understand what he meant. But until we start moving forward. And I remember in a time where we put on the marquee, we put uh, famous black heroes on the marquee and parents were calling upset, very upset that we were honoring Black History Month. Um, mm-hmm. During Cinco de Mayo, some of the cafeteria uh, workers, the ladies in the cafeteria, they had the uh, Mexican flag on the wall. Some of the parents were calling upset about that and Mr. McCall did what he said he fielded those calls but he said move forward move forward and And I think I think as a society we forget that we are a melting pot that's how that's how we were established you know not always in the best ways though I mean of how people got here I mean (laughs) I want to put that out there but we are a melting pot we are we are one of the the most diverse places to live and, and I'm telling you, even as I was teaching in the classroom at Granite, because I taught U.S. history, when I would go over things, so I know that I was the first Black teacher for many of my students at Granite, um, and they would tell me they had never had a Black teacher before, and they were my white students, my white and Black students, but they loved me to death. And I yes. love them to death. Yes. And so this is the thing, when we would get to certain topics, certain subject matter, um, say, for example, the civil rights movement, and I'm, I'm teaching them about the civil rights movement. From my perspective as a Black person, I'm going to teach it from the lens of a Black person. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they've taken another history teacher who wasn't Black, they're teaching it from their lens, right? Yes. 
So as I'm teaching the civil rights movement, there are things that they had never learned before, even though Mm -hmm. they had taken, you know, you take, you learn bits and pieces as you go eighth grade, you know, whatever through elementary. Um, One of my students came to me and he was almost in tears. And he said, how come I never learned this before? And it kind of broke my heart because, you know, when we, when I taught the students that, they became more understanding. So people say, oh, they shouldn't learn about slavery or they shouldn't learn about this and that. History is history. We can't change history for one. Right. Um, but, but we, we can, can learn from it. But we can learn from it. And when you learn about the struggles that different groups went through and the not just the struggles, but the overcoming and the resilience of a people, it makes you more empathetic. It mm-hmm. makes you more understanding. It makes you understand yes. where people are coming from, why this group is angry, why they they haven't had they fe- haven't felt appreciated. You right. understand. It's not an effort to make people feel bad because none of my students felt bad. It's the way that you teach them. It, it's not teaching them to try to oppress them and make them feel bad. It's giving them the information and then letting them filter through it how they're going to filter through it. That's a great teacher. You you yes. give them the information and then you let them run with that information. Yes. Well, how does how do you feel about that? What could we have done differently? Where, right. where were your people? And I remember I had a student who said he was a Latino student. He said, Miss Jackson, well, where were the Latino people during the civil rights movement? And I said, you know what? I want you all to go look up where, what what your people were doing during the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And the kids came back. Now that you know, our kids don't like to do homework. No kids. And I, <laughs> those kids came back the next day and they were excited to tell me what their particular ethnic group was doing during the civil rights movement. Same. And some of it was positive and some of it was negative. And we addressed both of those things. And that's how it should be. I'm not here to just to just try to sway minds one way or another. We're here to give the information and let the kids critically think about the information. And when I tell you my my classroom spaces were a community, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. a community in there. Yes. We family, yes. And we cared about each other based on what we had learned in that class to keep us you know, connected. Yes. But hiding that information, I don't think that's helpful to anybody. No, not not at all. Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. And you're you're bringing awareness to everybody and that that is powerful and it is needed. Mm-hmm. And it's not sticking your head in the sand, you right. know. And it's asking questions. I mean that that that's the first thing. Ask the questions. Don't be afraid to ask the questions. Right. right. And if you can facilitate that space in those classes, and that's what that's what good teachers do. You you have that dialogue, you have mm-hmm. that conversation, and you're not afraid to address, you know, because one of my students asked me, it was funny, and it was a prolific question. Um, we were talking about slavery, and he said, um, but slavery was legal. And I was like, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. So now we get into a discussion about legality and mm-hmm. morality oh yes <laughs> so, yes so the question to ask him thereafter was even though it was the law there were people you know the uh the um abolitionists who were going against the the law to fight for freedom mm-hmm. so that's a whole other conversation and where do you stand on that line 
Yeah. It, it, it starts making them think. And then you start equating that to the things that are going on because everything is connected. History, we're all connected from start to finish. Yes. Um, but, but you know, shying away from those, those types of conversation is not helping us move forward. No, it is not. Yeah. And, and, you know, going along with that is the fact that when we, like you and I were talking briefly, it's okay to, to agree to disagree. Mm-hmm. We're not going to agree on everything, but it's a matter of me listening to you, you're part of it. And then you listening to me and then somewhere in the middle, hopefully we can find a middle that mm-hmm. we can agree on, but you're not going to get everybody to agree with you, right. but you should still be willing to listen and, and try to understand yeah. where they're coming from. Exactly. Exactly. It's the effort that takes effort. And some people are willing to, to put in that effort and some people aren't, but I think us in the educational community, we definitely all need to be willing to put in the effort to listen to each other and yes. to understand that my experiences are not your experiences and your experiences are not my experiences. And that's right. okay. It's okay for us not to have the same experiences, but you need to respect that my experiences are different and this is my live reality and likewise it's about respect i always keep that word at the top of my list of things if i respect someone i can listen to them right um, if i respect someone if they respect me they can listen to me and we may mm-hmm. not disagree but we can still have a good understanding you know yes yes um, and that that's how that's how we, we have to move forward in that way especially yep. in the world the realm that we work in Yes, um, because different kids are going to come to our spaces with so many different experiences, and even being black. Um, you know, my experience, even though I grew up in the home that I grew up in when drugs came, we still were a middle class family. I didn't grow up poor. Mm-hmm. I lived in poverty as an adult because mm-hmm. I go to college and I had to work my way up. But growing up, I grew up in a middle class home. So even some of that, you know, I can identify with poverty being in a, an adult parent, but some of the kids, although we're, we say we share the same race, we don't all we don't even have the same experiences. Right. Generationally, we don't have the same experiences. Right. So I may be able to identify with you as a woman um, more so that I can even identify with a, a young black male. Sure. Now, culturally, I can understand some of the cultural things. I understand clearly racism. I have I've gone through so much of that. Um, so when they say that, I always listen. Mm-hmm. When a student comes to me and they say, this teacher is racist, I don't leave it there. I ask them why. Why? Right. What did they do? What did they do? And then if 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 it is something that is a microaggression and it is something that can be construed as racist, we talk about it. And I go address the teacher and ask them if they understood that what they did was racist, but everybody is not going to be brave. Right. Those are the people. See, if there are different people, those are the people. When you start talking about race, you have to be brave. Yes. Um, Yes. Because those are hard, hard conversations. And those are people that um, I think when you when you have people that that volunteer to to be that person. You have to volunteer mm-hmm. um, because everybody's not going to be everybody's not going to be willing to have those hard conversations. 
Well, and 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 going along with that, I want people that are listening right now to know that when you have cultural questions, Alika is the person <laughs> that I would highly recommend because I, I know from personal experience, and I I and I know from from the relationship that you and I built, mm-hmm. uh, it, it was on on respect mm-hmm. and admiration for each other and and willingness to learn. Uh, back and forth from one another. Mm -hmm. And so those of you that are listening, if if you find that you are in a community or you are in an area, you don't have to be an educator. You just have to be a human being and you want to understand either another race or another culture or whatever it may be right here, who you are listening to, Dr. Alika Jackson- Jarrell. She is the one, she is a source that I would highly recommend that you get in touch with. And, and going along with that, I'll say it again at the end of the the podcast here, but I'm going to have information that's going to be in the description for you to get in touch with her. Mm -hmm. She is someone that is more than willing to talk with you and, and, and have a discussion with you. That's what it's about is having having a talk, having a discussion, uh, a, a meaningful one. So, I mean, Alika, what you're saying is just, is so powerful and it's just so, so right on. I mean, just thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all of it. Um, go, going along with that kind of, uh, not changing, but since, you know, this podcast is about rediscovering your passion and pers- purpose, mm-hmm. which you have shown that you have done over and over again, Right now at this stage in your life, what would you say that you are passionate about personally and professionally? So personally, I have, we talked about it. I'm a mom of eight. I have, my last two children are a set of twins, king and queen. They Mm. actually graduated high school a couple of weeks ago. And my husband and I are now empty nesters. (laughs) So, after 30 years of parenting K through 12 students, I am uh, moving into the next phase of parenting. I'm not done parenting. You mm-hmm. never end parenting, no. but I am moving into the adult uh, phase of parenting and I'm passionate now about traveling. Oh, um, yeah. I, I have not been able to travel uh, nearly as much as I would love to. I want to be like you. <laughs> yeah, right on, right on. And I want to. I'll go show you the ropes. Them. We'll yes, talk. We'll yes. talk about that. <laughs> okay. So next, then, what would you say right now in this uh, stage of your life, in this chapter, uh, is your purpose personally and professionally? So uh, professionally, um, I always feel like every. Every district should have uh, uh, an equity office. Mm-hmm. So this is my passion right now. So we have we have SPED offices, uh, we have ELL offices at the district office. We have food services, we have student services. I believe every district should have an equity office. Wow. Um, with that in mind, uh, my passion, my my extreme passion, is to one day be the director of one of those equity offices. Um, to it's going to happen. I know. Yes, it. I'm it's speaking it into existence. I exactly. You're putting it in the universe. <laughs> right. So I'm hoping that districts uh, catch, you know, catch on in our area. Um, I don't want to have to leave this area to do this work. 
mm-hmm. because the work is needed here. So I'm mm-hmm. hoping that at some point um, our districts start moving uh, toward that thought process because everyone's data in all the districts in the high desert say the exact same thing. It says that, and, and across the nation to be exact, it says that African-American students are not um, going to college. Uh, they're not uh, uh, obtaining their A through G classes. That's a big issue. And it's been an issue for many, many years. Districts have the data, um, uh, the lowest performers academically at all in all of our districts are the African-American students. And we've been digging our heads in the sand, ignoring mm-hmm. that data. And mm-hmm. it's problematic because people don't like to look at race, but we look at other line items. So we see that foster kids need this. We, we see that sped kids need this. We see that EL students need this. And it's not a problem until you see that African-American students need it. So our goal as educators should be to help the subgroups that need the most help. Right. And then after you've helped them and gotten them to a place where they don't need that support anymore, you move with the next groups of people who need help. That's really what equity is. Mm-hmm. So if we are truly equitable um, in the districts in the high desert. We will address uh, explicitly the data that says exactly what I'm saying. We need to help our African-American students and we need to help our EL students because those are the two subgroups who need it the most. And it's all a part of validation. Yep. Yes. So we have to get beyond uh, people don't like people shy away from race conversations. We have to move past that. It doesn't right. always have to end up in an argument. And that's doesn't. what I think people are afraid of. And yeah. that's not always the case. We have to look at what the root causes are, are to these to these, you know, to these issues in our in our community and the root causes of why our African-American students are the lowest achieving students. It's because of the way that we're doing things within our districts that systemically need to be changed. Mm -hmm. So I want to speak to that. I want to speak to what my passion is now. Um, Right now at Atalanto High, I am the coordinator for a program called the Heritage Program. Mm. And the Heritage Program, is it was a pilot program started last year by our district in effort to address the inequity um, for African-American students. So basically, we looked at our data. We saw what all the other, other districts see. African-Americans are not, um, you know, not going to college. We're not taking A through G classes. And you know what happens after that. We know what happens if you're not going to college. You don't make as much money. You mm-hmm. end up going to prison because mm-hmm. your reading scores, you know, reading in prison are a direct correlation. Um, if if you are not at grade level reading by fourth fourth grade, they're already building prison beds for, for a future oh generation. Yes. So reading and prison have a direct correlation. So African-American students are ending up on these routes, not going to college, not doing this, not doing that. And we have a key to addressing those inequities if we address them. So with the heritage program that we um, that the district piloted it last year, it has been a direct approach um, in supporting African-American students on our campus. So I'm responsible for the 347 10th through 12th graders Mm. At Atlanta High School, um, no longer teaching is more of a um, it's a coordinator position. So mm-hmm. I am working, mentoring those students, uh, making sure they are in A through G classes, keeping track of whether they pass or fail. It's kind of counselor wow. work, learning the ends and odds of counseling, too. Mm-hmm. But it's also the other side of it. Uh, the parents are involved. 
So I'm wow. connected to parents. We had a parent meeting and people were like, how did you get all these parents here? Because you never see large groups of African-American parents. Well, culturally, you understand in order to get African-American parents to come to the school, you can't shoot them a text and say, um, come to the meeting at the school. You have to personally reach out to them. You mm -hmm. have to send them emails, text, call, and you have to have food at the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> food all Food brings people out, but those are cultural nuances, uh, you know, things that you just, you, you have to know in order to get the results. So parent contact, college awareness. And when I say college awareness, all of our kids are taught from elementary school, um, college, college, college. That's what we talk about all the time as teachers. We, you're going to college, higher education. But if students don't see themselves there, and a lot of African-American students don't, they don't see themselves represented on campuses. They don't have the drive to go, right? Mm -hmm. So when we go to college campuses, we make sure to connect with the African-American groups that are on those campuses so that the kids can see their age group peers. Make a connection. And make a connection. And then, because as soon as we walk on the campus, that's the first thing the kids say. And some people got mad at the Heritage Program. They were like, this is just avid. Why do you need a Black avid? No, <laughs> it's not AVID because the kids brought it to my attention. Some of them are in AVID and they say this, they say at the difference between heritage and AVID is AVID, you will go on a college tour when you go on the college campuses. You'll take the tour, you'll go to financial aid, but with heritage, you'll do all of that. And then you'll directly talk to the African-American students. Mm -hmm. You will bond with them. They will encourage you. You will ask them questions. And just that one piece changes the trajectory because as soon as our students walk on campus, the first thing they say to me every time is, I don't see any black people. Mm -hmm. And everywhere we go as human beings, we look for a connection. We sure. Look, we look for our community. Yes. So if they don't see them, they're like asking that. And I'm saying, be patient. You're going to be here. So you're going to add to those numbers. Mm -hmm. But teaching them, helping them navigate the process. We literally, um, we had the parents come and the students came, the heritage students, the seniors, and we helped them do their FAFSAs. Most of these parents don't know how to do a FAFSA. They don't know how to apply to college. So there we are with that. Um, when we think of systemic racism, we think of the lack of opportunity, lack of access. Mm -hmm. So if a kid is smart enough, and most of our students are, they, these are 3.5, 4.2 students, but their parents, their first generation, they have no clue how to apply for college. So if we don't have the capacity to help them do that, they're just going to be stuck in the high desert, not going to college. Right. So that's part. And then of, they become a statistic. Right. Right. So that's part of the process, too. So we going we we were able to take this year our first historically black college tour. We we, we went for a whole week. We took 45 students across the country uh, wow. to visit. Uh, we went to seven different historically black colleges and the kids had an amazing time. Wow. Um, they were able to see themselves represented in school. Mm -hmm. We went to the African-American Smithsonian Museum in Washington, DC. We visited Martin Luther King's home, childhood home. Oh my goodness. Um, the kids came back and they <clears throat> were forever changed. Sure. And, and what they, what really resonated with me and what they said was <clears throat> I learned about my history and I feel I feel they felt 
prideful, but they felt like they had to, they had to upkeep the legacy that so many people have have paved the way for them for. Sure, they know they understood in that whole process that people have died for you to pick up a book and read. Mm-hmm. You better read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that yes. that that awakening happened on the trip. So it it became bigger than even just the college visits. It it became a matter of your your life and your responsibility is to be positive and be productive and then to give back to people who like the people who gave back to you yes pay, paying it forward yeah, paying it forward so so it, along it, so along with that alika what would you say is your superpower my superpower is inspiring people <laughs> yes I, and i can you I you can, got that you have that too you you share that superpower yes. you you were the same person that every meeting we went to you uplifted the room when you walked in your light just shined so bright and your energy was just so big it made other people happy and it made other people want to do more and i remember when you told me you said you weren't always like that you had like an awakening and, and your awakening was huge, <laughs> but yes. that's what I remember most. I think, I think part of being alive and, 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 and living in your truth is being able to shine that light and be an inspiration for some, your story has to inspire somebody. Yeah. And I think everybody has a story. They just, they don't have the voice yet. They, they don't understand how to use the voice, mm-hmm. but everybody has something to give and something to share. And I think that my superpower in that is being able to openly be transparent and share mm-hmm. and people connect to that sharing. And they say, well, if I can, that's why I got the doctorate too. I was like, I dropped out of high school, but that wasn't going to stop me. Right, exactly. <laughs> I, I need to show these kids that this little black girl from Compton who dropped out of high school, went back to school and became this great person. I, if she could do it, I could do it too. And when I tell you, Patty, that kids, when I when I came to work and I, I said, I'm Dr. Jackson now, the kids were happy the kids were ecstatic they were telling other kids don't call her miss jackson that's dr jackson <laughs> they they took pride and ownership in it, and that's what i i live for i want them to see and i have students now that that they tell me they're like i think i'm gonna get a doctorate and and they say it with such that's ease. that's cool and i'm like that's it's easy it's not yeah. hard so so to have them understanding that that realization is right there that mm-hmm. that is worth its weight in gold. And you're the living example. You're a living example that they of somebody they know yes. that can see that see what is possible. Mm-hmm. I mean mm-hmm. that that is that is a superpower. It is which, yes. which leads right into then my final question for you is how are you living your best dash? Ooh, you said how am I living my best what? Your best dash. Oh, Daring, so so you know that that dash mark that's in between your date of birth and your date of death, that dash tells the story of your life. And you, you, you've alluded to that during this entire conversation, but how is it right now at this point in time, knowing that you are at a certain point on that dash, you've got so much time. How would you say right now in this moment, you are living your best dash? I would say that I am, because I am totally living in my honest truth, I am doing things that I absolutely love to do and I don't care what anybody feels feels about it. So I'm taking time for me. Mm-hmm. 
I, mm-hmm. I mean, if I need a day, I'm taking a day. Mm-hmm. Um, I am putting me first. I'm, I'm going to the gym. I'm trying to work out so that I can live as long as possible to see my grandchildren mm-hmm. one day. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm traveling. That's like number one on my list. Traveling, traveling, traveling. And just living to the best of my ability to be an example for others. Um, I live, I always say this, I live to inspire others. Mm -hmm. I live to encourage and motivate and teach people that you are the prize. You are the one that we have been waiting for. I say that all the time. Um, we're looking for, quit looking for people to come save you. You have to save yourself and you are the person that we have all been waiting for. So I'm living in that, in that light now. Uh, and I'm unafraid. I'm not, I'm not afraid anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm fearless. (laughs) Yes, yes, you are. Yes, you are. Are there any final thoughts or words of wisdom you'd like to share with our audience? I would just like to say, because I I, kind of have an idea. We talked a little bit about uh, your audience space. I would like to just say, be open, be open, ask questions. Even if it's not me, there is somebody that is different from you that you can approach and that would be willing to talk to you and teach you if you really want to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you really want information, if you're genuine in that information, nobody is going to get offended at that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if you offend and you're, and that person lets you know that you offended them, my painting just fell down. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you offend them, be open to letting them explain to you why it is offensive and learn from the offense. Mm-hmm. But overall, be open. Be open to new information. Amen to that. Well, Alika, thank you so much for being my guest today. I mean, it, this has been a true honor and such a thrill for me to get to reconnect with you during this podcast. It's been awesome. Thank you. It's been equally awesome. I appreciate you, Patty. For the audience that I know that's going to want to connect with you, how can they 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 make that connection with you? Well, if they want to email and I'll send you, well, you have this information. Yeah, I'll, I'll put that in there. It's, but say it verbally as well. Okay. It's, it's black, B-L-A-C-K, grad, G-R-A-D-H-D at gmail.com. And then if you want to connect uh, via Instagram, you can follow my Instagram page at Dr. Alika Jackson, Jarrell, I believe. <laughs> and, and, of, and of course, if they want to order your book, get your book. Where can they go to get your book? Um, I'm Books, gonna say, I should say. I, I'm going to say that they can go on Amazon, but I would prefer that they don't because if anybody is an author, you know that Amazon, when you write a book, uh, they, t- they only give you $2 mm-hmm. off of profit, basically, for your book. And they keep all of the rest of the profit. So I will send you the email at lulu.com of of my publisher. And it's better if you purchase the book there. Excellent. You've got a landing page there for the board. Perfect. Excellent. All right. So for those of you that are out there listening, I hope that you have enjoyed this podcast as much as I've enjoyed having Alika on it. And remember, I'd love for you to subscribe and uh, follow me on this podcast. And also while you're at it, invite your family and friends to do the same thing. And uh, that would just be truly awesome. And remember also, if you want to connect with me, uh, feel free to go to my website, www.com 
pathwayswithpatty.org and sign up for a free Zoom chat with me. And also what that does is if you go to the little green button on the website, it'll say to get your free gift. That'll put you on my uh, my email list where you'll get my weekly newsletter uh, that I put out every single Wednesday. And uh, you'll also be getting my Pathway to a New Beginning Roadmap. So until we meet again, remember to continue to live your best dash, knowing that your that life's an adventure. I want you to enjoy the journey because your life matters. So thank you, Alika, once again for joining us. I'm so happy that you are here today. And to all of you listening, thank you for joining us. And may God bless you all. Have a terrific day out there. Remember to live your best life. 